Welcome again to another episode here of Contextualize. This is AJ with Pastor Jim. We didn't go away forever. No, but it's, you know, I looked, it's been a has almost, it been a month? Almost a month. We're the like thing a you don't days. do if you want to be a social media <laughs> shareable We're breaking all the content blog source. recommendations. Yes. So, but, you know, it's been a busy month. We had the workshop here, preaching workshop here, and then you were gone. And then you were gone on vacation. You were gone for a workshop and then gone on yeah. vacation. So yeah. we're here. Yeah, it's going to be back. So um, why don't you just uh, share, not to rehash the workshop stuff, but you were at two. So what what's a way that you were helped or grew through your time at the preaching workshops. Yeah, so we just talked briefly in our own time. It's an exhausting thing to do workshops. They're awesome, but they're exhausting. And one of the things that is so beneficial because it's not as common in daily life is the workshops very much have this debrief culture kind of built into them. Uh, And so when I was in Wichita, Kansas as an instructor, I, I slightly know the other instructor, but it was part of our instructing in the evenings we would spend an hour together and say okay in our two different instructions uh maybe we did we each did two on that particular day like what was the big takeaway um what did you find went well um where did you think things were unclear and just to have a conversation partner to debrief yeah probably over the last those two workshops in a row having kind of that debrief slash critical thinking grid put over top of what i was doing I come away just really encouraged of the importance of other people saying, hey, let me encourage you and affirm what you did. Or, Jim, I think you chose a good text example, but your questions were a little murky. So maybe if you would ask it this way or we debriefed and brainstormed about other ways I could have asked the question because I felt like I was getting deer in headlight looks, Uh you know. Uh I just came, I flew home and I was like, man. I have learned a ton, not just from the big group settings, but the one-on-one time with a yeah. ministry friend. Yeah. So that's my big takeaway. That's awesome. Um, and that's, uh, it just makes me think of what we're, and what we're trying to do that, or we are doing that um, here, yeah. pastoral staff-wise, as we do the word work together too. Just, um, I just think there, there's a lot of benefit. Um, I can see certain things about myself or certain things about myself when I teach or preach or present or do something, but there's a whole lot you don't get about yourself or you don't see. Um, or maybe you see something that didn't go well, but you're not quite sure why, but having that other person who can speak into that uh, can be so helpful. Even to have somebody who says, now, I think I know where you were going. Why did you go about it that way? Uh-huh. And to have to articulate an answer because like, <laughs> it seemed the easiest at the time or because uh, that's yeah. the only one I could think of. Yeah. So, I want to just encourage uh, those who are listening, especially those of you who are part of Christ community, in relationships, in study of God's Word, in teaching God's Word, in handling our finances and our family. I mean, I could just keep adding scenarios up. Push yourself to be in a place where when you're not in the moment of decision or you're not in the moment of action, you've surrounded yourself with people that you debrief your actions Mm -hmm. or you debrief your decisions Mm -hmm. with. It is a, it's exhausting mm-hmm. and it needs to be done with, with graciousness. Yeah. It can't be done with, you know, sort of an attack mode. Right. Um, right. But when you have those partners in life, it is a real game changer yeah. as far as not feeling alone and feeling equipped for the next time around. Right. Right. So the parents with other parents, that kind of stuff. Let me just encourage you to seek it out with others because we're trying to do it here in our office and it's, it's a special culture to be a part of. Yeah. It's great. Yep. Iron sharpens iron. Yeah, ma'am. 
So we are in Second Samuel nine today, and uh, you know, I think Second Samuel seven is is pretty well known with uh, God's covenant with David. Second Samuel nine has um, a pretty well known or well known to many. Um, it's just it's an exciting story. Um, it's one of my favorites. So um, there's a train. Yeah, <laughs> hold on. Okay. So, Just to remind you, we don't have a sound room in our <laughs> church where we do this without... There's actually a sound where we just hit a button for train sound. Yeah, that's right. Um, all right, so this chapter opens up. Well, let's, let's backtrack. Chapter 8, right, we, you know, David's been anointed. He, he's, God's made his covenant with him. Then chapter 8, David defeats um, the enemies all around him. And we read at the end of chapter 8, right, David reigned over all Israel. David administered justice and equity to all people. So it's, it's this beautiful picture of the good reign, the righteous reign of the good king. Um, and then chapter 9, it hones in, not broadly, which is what we saw in chapter 8, but very specifically on a personal relationship. It's not unlike the biblical writer to give summary statements, which we have in 15 especially. David reigned. David administered justice and equity, as you just said, but that's verse 15, so like four verses before where we start. Uh And to have a broad statement then be followed by a spirit-driven select example. Yeah, yeah. Because that's what I have when I look at this. I'm like, why? (laughs) Why do we have this? There's a whole bunch of things David was doing with justice and equity. Yeah. We're we're told that. So why is this the one? Man, I'm so glad it is because of... It really links us to First Samuel. It links us to stuff that we've been studying as a church when we were teaching through that book. Yeah, it's an amazing chapter. Yeah, about David's love for the household of Saul. Yeah, so it, it opens up in verse one, right? David says, "Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake?" All right, so that's that's David's initial. Right, that's what he wants to do, and then really the story is going to progress to fulfill right that desire of his. Um, and so he's looking for somebody in the house of Saul, but he also mentions Jonathan. And the, the word he says there, and I remember, I think you even mentioned this back in one of the sermons in First Samuel, but right, it's to show him kindness. Uh, this is the word hesed, if, if you're familiar with that. So steadfast love, kindness, mercy, for Jonathan's sake. Uh, that's what he's wanting to do. Well, he, and that word is going to show up in verse 3. It's in verse 1. It's in verse 3. It's again down in verse 7. And so over and over, mm-hmm. David is he's oozing the steadfast love of God. That's the way it's written in verse 3, for Jonathan's sake. And so just to think through, David is not forgetting any of the words of promise that he made to Jonathan, which he made, there were various times he and Jonathan covenanted together. Yeah, yeah. And so to think of David being a king whose justice and equity remembers keeping promises that he's yeah. made. Yeah, yeah. And that's, so one example, so First Samuel 20, uh, Jonathan warns David um, about, uh, you know, the, the danger, uh, his, his life is in danger. He says, may the Lord be with you, and then verse 14 of chapter 20, if I'm still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die, and do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. And so like that very request that Jonathan makes of David is what David it really is alluding to, right? He's, he's not cutting off his steadfast love, his kindness, his hesed from the house of Jonathan, the house of Saul. I think that what hits me is the exact verbiage of what you just read of their covenant together in 1 Samuel 20 is still connected then also to the fact that when David is reigning with righteousness, when things are as they should be, 
I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. At least that's the way the scriptures yeah. kind of present right. us. This moment in his kingdom ministry, things are going rightly. Yeah. He's able to consider promises he'd made that he intended to fulfill when everything was going rightly. Yeah. And I, this is going to be a horrible immediate like sort of emoting here but whenever i'm in a place in life where i just feel like i'm barely hanging on like there's just so many obligations there's so much pressing in maybe it's work obligations or family obligations it's easy to forget things and say oh when i come up for air Uh i plan to do this this and this and keep the promises that i haven't been keeping (laughs) that's my life yeah Uh, there's something beautiful here about david has put god's people's communal experience in order there is safety right now from enemies on the outside there's mm-hmm. justice and equity yeah, on, on the, the inside, inside. and yeah. you can understand then why the king has bandwidth in his heart yeah to say who in saul's house and jonathan's house still needs for me to show them mercy to keep yeah. my promise because in the midst of all i've had to do yeah this has stayed on my heart and my mind and i yeah it's an amazing picture of a, of Forecasting the Messiah. Yeah. Right. Who cared for his people thoroughly. Yeah. And not one of the promises that never fell to the ground. Yeah. Every single one of them, right, he he fulfills for us. Yeah. Um so in in the story, he you know that he he finds a servant of Saul named Zeba. He goes to him, he asks, you know, and, and, and Zeba says, Well, there is still a son. Of Jonathan, and he's crippled in his feet. And we had read about this back in was that chapter four? Maybe? Yep, I um, think it was four. Yeah. When Ishbosheth is is murdered, um, Mephibosheth is he escapes or he's, he's taken out by his nurse. Um, he's dropped. He's crippled in his feet. So he's crippled from from early life. Um, and so David said, you know, he basically says, "Bring him to me." Um, and so he, he they meet in verse six. Uh, and he, he just, he comes and he says, behold, I'm your servant, which is what you should do when you're brought before the king, right? That's the appropriate thing. But then David says, do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And Mephibosheth's response is great, right? He pays homage, but he says, what is your servant that you, that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? He has awareness that... It would not be culturally normal for the incoming king whose life was constantly sought <laughs> by Mephibosheth's father yeah. to show mercy to the son of his previous nemesis. Yeah, like if this is not a righteous king, and it's a normal king, you might say, he's bringing you in for one thing. Well, but <laughs> even in some regards, you could almost say even if it is a righteous king, there's, there's times in which the yeah. unjust house of the previous king will be Cleaned right, up. right. There's judgment. But what we have is this king is a king of justice and of mercy. Yeah. And he made a promise of steadfast love and mercy to Jonathan. And Jonathan was so loyal to David. And so David's going to be loyal to Jonathan's house. But I, I do think that Mephibosheth had fear. I mean, he uh-huh. says, because David's first words to him are, do not fear. Yeah. So while Mephibosheth has this homage and this, I'm your servant, what do you need? There must have been some sort of intimation on his face by his body language of just, mm-hmm. I knew this was coming. Yeah, I knew the day in which my life would end uh, because I yeah. still am the son of Saul. Yeah, yeah. It's wild. And for for David to right to restore everything, right, restore all the land, 
Um, so all of Saul's things. I mean, it, and we've talked about this before, but by the way, I said son of Saul. I mean, son of Jonathan. Son of Jonathan. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry. It would be. It would just be so easy for David to seek vengeance on Saul and on his family. I mean, that that would be so natural. Um, but yeah. just to see him not only be kind of generally kind, but he's actually restoring everything of Saul's to Jonathan yeah. or to Mephibosheth. And this crippled man who's been cut off in many ways is now going to eat at the king's table. I mean, there's That's a picture of intimacy, a picture of security, yeah. a picture of honor, all those things. So he restores what was lost and he gives him what he can't have. Yeah. He doesn't have access to the throne room of the king he he's he doesn't have a father right and i mean the language there of just he treated him like a son uh that's in verse 11 it's one of the most glorious pictures i think of the adoption that is given to us in christ mm-hmm. that the new testament just on un, just unfolds this beautiful picture of being children of promise yeah not slaves right but sons. Right. And now you have this man who says, I'll be your servant. Yeah. And he's going to yeah. receive the care of a son. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's pretty amazing. And then the, the last last couple of verses to finish out the chapter. Um, all right. So Ziba carries this out. He's the servant. Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Uh, he, he's made a son of the king. Uh, Mephibosheth had a young son. His name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So he, he not only has land and sitting at the table, treated as a king's son, he, he receives servants. I mean, he's, he's exalted to this high honored position as if he were David's son. Um, and he lived in Jerusalem. He ate always at the king's table. And then you get the final little comment. Now he was lame in both of his feet. Yeah. Unless we forget. <laughs> just don't forget who this guy is. And, and I think it just serves to contrast um, what has happened in Mephibosheth's life, what his lot in life was. Uh, and he was one who had to escape uh, or be taken in escape uh, to save his life because his family had been cut off. He's crippled in that. And then I mean, what prospects does he have in life until David comes along yeah. and fulfills the steadfast kindness that he had promised to Jonathan years before? When we were teaching through First Samuel, one of the things that... I felt like we leaned into pretty heavily is the typological understanding that David is the Christ figure. Right. Right. He's going to be the Messiah. And even the way he went through suffering to fill his role. There's all sorts of ways that each of the chapters in 1 Samuel would show that. When we looked at Jonathan, we saw one who laid his life on the line out of loyalty to God's king. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if anything, you could say, well, that's where we would, when we read First Samuel, we'd want to relate to Jonathan and say, am I willing to forsake my kingdom on earth, which right. is what Jonathan did, right. to be a part of God's kingdom with God's king? Uh-huh. All right. Fast forward to Second Samuel. Yeah. It's a similar mindset to say, yeah. who in the story ought we relate to? And I think it's not David. Right. It's Mephibosheth. Yeah. This unworthy recipient of adoption by the king who is lavished all of the resources of the king he's provided for he's cared for and he doesn't seem to forget certainly he hasn't forgotten by the way that he spoke of just i'm an undeserving servant to receive any of this and so again just forecasting our life in the gospel there's ways in the new testament saying that we are the ones who have been adopted 
outside of anything we've earned, mm-hmm. outside of anything we've mm-hmm. done. And many of us would say, well, the, my lot and struggle in this life, this world, has been dark, mm-hmm. has been hard, has been unfair. That's Mephibosheth. Yeah. And yet, what does it look like to be adopted by the king and to be given a place at his table as a son? I think it's a, it's a picture of salvation. Absolutely. And it's a forecasting of the New Testament's description of it for us. Yeah. And, and it, I think thinking of the emphasis in this text on um, the steadfast love or kindness, right? The Hesed of David. Um, and thinking about, okay, how does that help us even continue in this idea of adoption for us? Is, is we think about our adoption by God, like it's not just a transactional, it's not just legal. Like it's, it's motivated by his yes. steadfast love, his mercy, his kindness. And, and Ephesians 1, uh, 4 and 5 says, In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. And so like if, if yep. we think of adoption but fail to consider its root in God's mercy and kindness to us, then we've really missed what adoption is. And I think this text just, like as much as it highlights David's um, overflowing kindness, like that's, it helps me see God's overflowing kindness to me, to us, that there's no reason, there's absolutely zero reason I should be a son of God. I got nothing except for his kindness. You think of what we're preaching in Matthew. This is, Mephibosheth has poverty of spirit. Mm-hmm. You know? He's got um, poverty of, yeah. of lots, I um, guess. Yeah, yeah. And, you know? and just but, yeah. to think that I'm undeserving. He, he comes humbly and servant, yeah. And good. then this morning I was meeting with somebody who, like myself, grew up in a Christian home and just a comment of, like, this individual said, as much as I knew the doctrines of salvation, I didn't know the motive of love. Hmm. And, and, and the way that the Bible describes we're, we're the bride of Christ. We're a church and Christ is like the husband who set his affection on mm-hmm. it. There's love mm-hmm. in that image. Yeah. There's love in the image of adoption from Ephesians, as you just read, but also in a picture like this. Um, we cannot escape the motive of God being described to us in, in the scriptures. Yeah. And again, maybe maybe a full wrap around right before Jesus, the King of Kings, suffered the cost on the cross. It's different than with Mephibosheth, so don't don't parallel it completely. But mm-hmm. there's a sense in which Jesus just never forgot what was required. I mean, whether he was telling his disciples, "Wait, I'm giving the Spirit; you're going to be equipped by what I do," or he's telling John, the disciple. Here's my mother. I want you to care for her. He's not. We have a king who doesn't forget the promises of care that are required for those who are desperate for it in his kingdom. That's true in in Christ's life. It was true here in this text with David. And um, it's true in our life. It's good. And I don't know if I've thought of this before with this text, but um, it is interesting to think about Psalm 23, which is right, David as well, but just the end of it, right, not the sheep part of the beginning, but the end, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. And then verse six, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And I mean, really, David's kind of speaking on the other side of what what he's doing here from Mephibosheth, but to the Lord, but just this idea of 
God's kindness to us that we will always dwell in his house. We will always eat at his table. We will always be numbered among his children. We will always have his goodness and mercy and steadfast love. Yeah, and Mephibosheth's identity is rerouted. Yeah. He's no longer just the son of Saul who's, who's yeah. you know, got deformed legs. <laughs> he's now a son of the king. He's a son of the king. And that's his identity. Yeah. yeah. The gospel is good. Yeah. yeah. And even, I mean, it's, this is just a thought off the cuff, but I mean, back in 1 Samuel, there's such a contrast between the house of Saul and the house of David. And, I mean, you see Jonathan, which is a bright light in the house of Saul, but just, I don't know, it's just interesting to see another generation later, the Lord doesn't totally wipe out the house of Saul. No, no. You know, and I mean, it makes sense going back to the promises with... But Hannah's prayer in 1 Samuel 2, she has also said, he's going to exalt the humble, he's going to, he's going to... Yeah. make fall uh-huh. and he's going to destroy those who are proud. So you yeah. have Saul experiencing that demise, yeah. but you have humble and loyal Jonathan yeah. and humble and, you know, deformed Mephibosheth right. are Being the ones exalted. that are humbly exalted. Yeah. So you have even some of the kind of the, the trajectory of first and second Samuel being lived out right here yeah. in this third generation story, Yeah, which is astounding. It's good. I got nothing more except for I want to just think about this today. Yeah, yeah. And I hope those listening will too. Just the adoption of us.